everybody. Welcome to Cloud of Compass Podcast. This is Lori Smith, your host. You want to know more about me? Do you want to work with me? Do you like what I have to say? Um, do you want to write me hate mail? Check me out on social media. I'm at Cloud of Compass 2021 on TikTok and Cloud of Compass 2021 on Instagram. I started this podcast because I wanted to share my knowledge, skills, and experience as an LMSW of 20 years. I am a survivor of help that harmed. I have had mental health issues. My ACEs score is high. I've had a history of trauma, but I also have some professional skills, knowledge, and experience that you might benefit from. I have been a certified diabetes educator for 10 years. I have worked in um, doctor's offices as a care manager with chronic health issues. I am certified. um, I'm a certified anxiety treatment provider, certified um, trauma provider. Provider, certified in compassion fatigue, addiction-informed mental health, and most recently a human rights consultant. I am the author of the book Life Hacks with Life Hacks, Tips and Tricks for Accessing Your Inner Resilience. I am the owner of Resilience Coach, which is an outpatient behavioral health therapy. And most recently, I am the owner of Cloud of Compass Coaching Consulting, um, which is part of this podcast. I have courses in um, recovery-oriented material, uh, neurodivergent um, information coming in. So I have courses, I have webinars, I have um, guests on my podcast, I have merchandise coming out soon. I have a link tree on my social media where you can access all of these things. I'd love for you to learn more about me. Love to you to for you to see if we are a good fit for working together. And in the month of December, I am hosting a half-off special of my of my signature course um, because I want to share this information with the world. It is a six-week course with 12 sessions, um, 12 videos of me. Um, again, I'm a little neurodivergent, so it's a little, um, it's not what you're going to expect from a course on transformation, but it is useful information. It is what I have found practical in my practice. It has the 12 video sessions, but it also has 200 page workbook of tools for self-regulation. And we teach how to uncover your own innate skill set. This is why I called my company Clouded Compass, because there are things that we have not been pointed towards. And once we align with our internal assets, our life becomes um, a little bit uh, uh, um, we become empowered, period. So check me out. Check me out on all my social media. Please leave comments. Let me know what you think. I would love to hear you, um, see you join my course. And please leave comments about the podcast too. I'd love to know what your favorite um, podcasts are, which ones you think really suck. And let's build community together. Let's educate, empower, and evolve. And let's uncover your own innate assets. Stay tuned. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Cloud of Compass. This is your host, Lori Smith. Um, What did you think about my grandmother's hands? I can't wait to hear more from you. I hope it was helpful. Um, Today, we are celebrating Black History Month this month. So I am focusing on books that are um, written by African-Americans that I have been beneficial, extremely beneficial to myself. So today I'm going to talk about bell hooks, and I first was introduced to bell hooks back when in my undergrad years. She's well known in, in feminist social circles, in the academic realms, the African-American realms, but she doesn't really get a lot of airplay. She's passed away. She lived a very um, um, simple yet effective life. She wrote many books. She 
spoken out. You can Google her on YouTube, et cetera. But she um, is just, again, a national treasure. And so I'm going to share some of what she wrote. The book I'm covering today is all about love, new visions. And she wrote it um, you know, a couple of decades ago, but I'm going to cover it. So um, I'm going to start off with the quote by Harold Kushner in here that says, uh, I'm afraid that we may be raising a generation of young people who will grow up afraid to love, afraid to give themselves completely to another person, because they will have seen how much it hurts to take the risk of loving and have it not work out. I'm afraid that they will grow up looking for intimacy without risk, pleasure without significant emotional investment. They will be so fearful of the pain of disappointment that they will forego, forego the possibility of love and joy. I can still relate to that because I was, uh, I did not date in my 20s. I did not want to. I did not want anything to do with men or women. I did date early in my 20s women, but um, in my 20s, mostly I did not want anything to do with love because of what I had learned from the world about it. If you see where we're at today, we have an entire generation who is existentially at a crisis tipping point. They don't have a lot to believe in. They don't have a lot to sort of ground their sense of self. And they don't have the support needed to learn those things. And that's not uh, a parental, um, necessarily a parental neglect. That is how we have shaped our culture and agreed to live in our culture. But I just think it's foretelling that she used that quote. And this was written decades ago. Um, yet young listeners remain reluctant to embrace the idea of love as a transformative force. To them, love is for the naive, the weak, the hopelessly, the hopelessly romantic. Their attitude is mirrored in the grown-ups they turn to for explanations. We were not given good skills to begin with, and the choices we make have tended to only reinforce our sense that it's hopeless and useless. If we do not learn the power of love, or talk about it, or be willing to talk about it because most of us are afraid, we're not going to evolve and we will, um, we will destruct from the inside out. Further out in the book, she says, um, women more often than not speak from a position of lack, of not having received the love we long for. A woman who talks of love is still suspect. Perhaps this is because all the enlightened women may have to say about love will stand as a direct threat and challenge to the vision men have offered us. I enjoy what male writers have to say about love. I cherish my Rumi and my Rilke, male poets who stir their heart with words. Men often write about love through fantasy, but I want to know love's truths as we live them. Ultimately, the author, okay, so blah, blah, blah. In actuality, all the concrete proof indicates that while the perspectives of men and women often differ, these differences are learned characteristics, not innate or natural traits. If the notion of that men and women were absolute opposites, inhibiting totally different emotional universes were true, men would never have become the supreme authorities of love, which is what she's proposing. Given gender stereotypes that assign to women the role of feelings and being emotional and to men the role of reason and non-emotion, real men would shy away from the talk of love. Yet our silence shields us from uncertainty. We are simply afraid the desire to know too much about love will lead us closer and closer to the abyss of lovelessness. So in a way, this is implying that the more we want to know about love and how transformative it can be, 
farther away from our sense of community and belonging we are because nobody else wants to talk about it for conditioned reasons. It is easier to articulate the pain of love's absence than to describe its presence and meaning in our lives. Yeah, taught to believe the mind, not the heart, is the seat of learning. Many of us believe that to speak of love with any emotional intensity means we, we will be perceived as weak and irrational. If you look at Marianne Williamson, uh, she wrote a book called A Return to Love in the 90s. She gets this all the time. Oh, you're so poo-poo. Oh, you stop your magical thinking. Like nobody really wants to give talking about love its adequate justice because we're all afraid. And it is especially hard, she says, to speak of love when what we have to say calls attention to the fact that lovelessness is more common than love that many of us are not sure what we mean when we talk of love or how to express love. Everywhere we learn that love is important and yet we are bombarded by its failure. In the realm of the political, among the religious, in our families and in our romantic lives, we see little indication that love informs decisions, strengthens our understanding of community or keeps us together. We still hope that love will prevail. We still believe in love's promise. The despair about love is coupled with a callous cynicism that frowns upon any suggestion that love is important as work, as crucial to our survival as a nation to, as the drive to succeed. Awesomely, our nation, like no other in the world, is a culture driven by the quest to love in the themes of movies, music, literature, even as it offers so little opportunity for us to understand love's meaning or to know how to realize love's love or word indeed. There's no school for love, yet everyone assumes that we will know how to love instinctively. Despite overwhelming evidence to the contrary, we still accept that the family is the primary school for love. Those of us who do not learn how to love among family are expected to experience love in romantic relationships. However, this love often eludes us, and we spend a lifetime undoing the damage caused by cruelty, neglect, and all manner of lovelessness experienced in our families of origin and in relationships where we simply did not know what to do. She says only love can heal the wounds of the past, but to open our hearts more fully to love's power and grace, we must dare to acknowledge how little we know of love in both theory and practice. We must face the confusion and disappointment that much of what we were taught about the nature of love makes no sense when applied to daily life. Contemplating the practice of love in everyday life Thinking about how we love and what is needed for ours to become a culture where love's sacred present, presence can be felt everywhere. I wrote this meditation, this book. We yearn to end the lovelessness that is so pervasive in our society. This book tells us how to return to love. It provides radical new ways to think about the art of loving, offering a hopeful, joyous vision of love's transformative power. It lets us know what we must do to love again. Gathering love's wisdom, it lets us know what we must do to be touched by love's grace. It's such a kind book. It's such a, a benign book. So I'm going to just cover a few, um, few entries in it. She touches on, um, when we understand love as the will to nurture our own and another's spiritual growth, it becomes clear that we cannot claim to love if we are hurtful and abusive. Love and abuse cannot coexist. Abuse and neglect are, by definition, the opposite of nurturing and caring. Yet an overwhelming majority of us come from dysfunctional families in which we were taught we were not okay, we were shamed verbally and or physically abused and emotionally neglected, even as we were also taught to believe that we are loved. 
For most folks, it is just too threatening to embrace a definition of love that would no longer enable us to see love as present in our families. Too many of us need to cling to a notion of love that either makes abuse acceptable or at least makes it seem that whatever happened was not that bad. Think about that in your own family. Think about how you were taught to remember only the good things and never the bad. We're not supposed to talk about the harm caused. We are supposed to keep secrets. We are supposed to feel like everybody's loved in the family. And she'll talk about the family later in the book. She says, I did not feel loved. I did not feel cared for in my childhood. Um, this experience and outside my household of origin, I felt genuinely loved by individual family members like my grandfather. This experience of genuine love, a com combination of care, commitment, trust, knowledge, responsibility, and respect nurtured my wounded spirit and enabled me to survive acts of lovelessness. I am grateful to have been raised in a family that was caring and strongly believe that had my parents been loved well by their parents, they would have given that love to their children. They gave what they had been given, care. I spent a lot of my life trying to deny the bad things that happened, trying to cling only to the memory of good and delicious moments in which I had known care. In my case, the more successful I become, the more I wanted to cease speaking the truth about my childhood. I have found that, like myself, most people, whether raised in an excessively violent or abusive home or not, shy away from embracing any negative critique of our experiences. This is so important to listen to because I know so many of us, I work in a field full of people that are telling me they grew up in a safe and nurturing home. We have really, really discombobulated the meaning of love. I was cared for. In fact, that's why I thought I had a good upbringing. I was, I, all, my, all my basic needs were met and I believe that my parents tried really hard to meet those needs. What they weren't taught was how to love in a way that connected us deeply. Why? Because their parents didn't know how to love in that way without abuse, without emotional trauma, et cetera, and so on. And so let's not sugarcoat over it. Let's notice, but that doesn't mean that this is about blaming people. If we were constantly remembering that love is as love does, we would not use the word in a manner that devalues and degrades its meaning. When we are loving, we openly and honestly express care, affection, responsibility, respect, commitment, and trust. Love is as love does, she says. So then she goes on to talk about um, in their, in their child's minds, love is not about what they had to give. Love is mostly something given to them. When children like these are overindulged, either materially or by being allowed to act out, this is a form of neglect. These children, um, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Where, where was I? These children, though not in any way abused or uncared for, are usually as unclear about love's meaning as their neglected and emotionally abandoned counterparts. Both groups have learned to think about love primarily in relation to good feelings in the context of reward and punishment. She talks about reward and punishment. She talks about um, children as property. They are the true victims of intimate terrorism in that they have no collective voice and no rights. They remain the property of parenting adults, 
to do with us as they will. And that is so important because since I've read this book, I've come to look at the um, criminal industrial complex, the family courts, the um, foster care system as uh, basically a form of human trafficking. If you look at our court systems, they were set up about four, you know, 400 or so years ago to protect property. And if we are from a top-down colonialistic um, father knows best mentality, then we, because of who we are and how we have learned and adapted in this culture, we think punishment is a form of love. You can be disciplinarian, but you do not have to be physically or emotionally violent to course correct somebody. And so when we look at the family court system, we the judge is deciding where the property is going to live, literally. It is not, in my experience, taking in the best needs of that, of that child. In fact, it is looking at it as a piece of property because both parents have rights, but the child doesn't have rights. And now I won't go into, you know, the child being interviewed in the court and, and having a say. All this is to say, we really, if love doesn't look that way, that's not love. Oh boy, she talks, they have no legal recourse. Most children will not know love in this way. In our culture, the private family dwelling is what is the one institution institutionalized sphere of power that can easily be autocratic and fascistic. Children can only rely on well-meaning adults to assist them if they are being exploited or oppressed in the home, but we don't even protect children when we take them out of the home. We put them in somewhere equally more dangerous and more emotionally abusive because they are separated from the person that they believe is their whole existence. Um, it's very interesting when you look at the, the nuclear family. Um, all the parents in the, the room, she's talking about a specific example, all the parents claim they are loving. All the people in that room were college educated. Most call themselves good liberals, supportive of civil rights and feminism. But when it came to the rights of children, they had a different standard. One of the most important social myths we must debunk if we are to become more loving culture is the one that teaches parents that abuse and neglect can coexist with love. Abuse and neglect negate love. Care and affirmation, the opposite of abuse and humiliation, are the foundation of love. Care and affirmation. No one can rightfully claim to be a loving, can claim to be loving when behaving abusively. Yet parents do this all the time in our culture. Children are told that they are loved even though they are being abused. So what do you think they grow up to learn? When they're coming to my office as an adult and they have been told that punishment is love, so many of my clients have inner shame, inner um, not good enough, inner I, I, imposter syndrome, et cetera, and so on. What hurt me most were my feelings of love for this man who was hitting me. So she talks about her own intimate experience. And one of the myths of lovelessness is that it exists only among the poor and deprived. Yet lovelessness is not a function of poverty or material lack. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with not being taught the skills um, and the tools. We're not using them. So she's talking about... Um, the males, how we are, how we condition males to um, be hard and separate. Um, most little boys are taught that they should not cry or express, express hurt, feelings of loneliness or pain, that they must be tough, that they are learning how to mask true feelings. In worst case scenarios, they're learning how to not feel anything ever. 
And yet, I have people asking me why addiction is so rampant in our country. I have people asking me why we have January 6th rioters on the front steps of the of the, the, the main house of our land, infiltrating and bringing guns to a knife fight. We have a huge issue in this country with how we condition young men. Young white men today, they feel purposeless. They don't have a, a, a they, 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 I'm telling you, this is a generation of existential crisis. We have, must look at our own wounds in terms of love and what we fear about it and what we've been conditioned and really truly ask ourselves is if it's getting to the goal of what we're looking for. Because my goal is not for us to be killing each other in the streets, to be quite honest with you. And women, as a counterpart, also get trained. They are taught quite regularly to defer their feelings to the man. Widespread cultural acceptance of lying is primary reason many of us will never know love. It is impossible to nurture one's own or another spiritual growth when the core of one's being and identity is shrouded in secrecy and lies. It leads to deception. It is, it is this truism that makes all acts of judicious withholding major moral dilemmas. It is such a commitment is difficult um, when uh, such a commitment to love is difficult when lying is deemed more acceptable than telling the truth. Lying has become so much the accepted norm that people lie even when it would be simpler to tell the truth. This is where we get gaslighting and narcissism, but we are accepting. We had a whole president, and yes, many presidents lie to us, but this was blatant lies that we knew were false, and that was easier for us to digest. And it sent us in a direction that is very, very dangerous for all of us. In today's world, we are taught to fear the truth, to believe it always hurts. We are encouraged to see honest people as naive, as potential losers but we are all potential victims. Consumer culture in particular encourages lies. Keeping people in a constant state of lack and perpetual desire strengthens the marketplace economy. It's good for capitalism, in other words. Lovelessness is a boon to consumerism and lies strengthen the world of predatory advertising. Our, our passive acceptance of lies in public life, particularly via the mass media, upholds and perpetuates lying in our private lives. Commitment to knowing love can protect us by keeping us wedded to the life to the life of truth, willing to share ourselves openly and fully in both public and private life. To know love, we have to tell the truth to ourselves and to others. Creating a false self to mask fears and insecurities has become so common that many of us forget who we are and what we feel underneath the pretense. Breaking through this denial is always the first step in uncovering our longing to be honest and clear. Lies and secrets burden us and cause stress. The wounded child inside many male males is a boy who, when he first spoke his truth, was silenced by paternal sadism, by a patriarchal world that did not want him to claim his true feelings. The wounded child inside many females is a girl who was taught from early on that she must become something other than herself, deny her true feelings in order to attract and please others. When men and women punish each other for truth-telling, we reinforce the notion that lies are better. 
to be loving, we willingly hear each other's truth. And most important, we affirm the value of truth telling. Lies make people feel better, but they do not help them know love. This is about being authentic and genuine in our lives. Many jobs, she says, undermine self-love because they require that workers constantly prove their worth. Individuals who are dissatisfied and miserable on the job bring this negative energy home. Clearly, much of the violence in domestic life, both physical and, and verbal abuse, is linked to job misery. We can encourage friends and loved ones to move towards greater self-love by supporting them in any effort to leave work that assaults their well-being. And right now, we're all being assaulted at work. When we work with love, we renew the spirit. That renewal is an act of self-love. Self-love It nurtures our growth. It's not what you do, it's how you do it. So you, I'm not asking you to bring love into a toxic work environment. I'm asking you to ask yourself, what role does work play in your ability to love yourself and others? So now we... Um, there's a gap between the values... Okay. Sadly, many of our nation's citizens are proud to live in one of the most democratic countries in the world, even as they are afraid to stand up for individuals who live under repressive and fascist governments. They are afraid to act on what they believe because it would mean challenging the conservative status quo. Refusal to stand up for what you believe in weakens individual morality and ethics, as well as those of the culture. No wonder then that we are a nation of people, the majority of whom, across race, class, and gender, claim to be religious, claim to believe in the divine power of love, and yet collectively remain unable to embrace a love ethic and allow it to guide behavior, especially if doing so would mean supporting radical change. Fear of radical changes leads many citizens of our nation to betray their minds and hearts. Yet we are all subjected to radical changes every day. We face them by moving through fear. Our willingness to embrace this unknown shows that we are all capable of confronting fears of radical change, that we can actually cope. Obviously, it's not in the interest of the conservative status quo to encourage us to confront our collective fear of love. This speaks to the trauma that I was talking about in the last um, episode with the intergenerational trauma and why and how we have gotten here. Society's collective fear of love must be faced if we are to lay claim to a love ethic that can inspire us and give us the courage to make necessary changes. A society which excludes relatively the development of love must in the long run perish of its own contradiction with the basic necessity of human nature. Faith enables us to move past fear. We can collectively regain our faith in the transformative power of love by cultivating courage, the strength to stand up for what we believe in and to be accountable both word and deed. And I will add to tend to our bodies in terms of um, somatics. Fear is the primary force upholding structures of domination. It promotes the desire for separation, the desire to not, be no not to be known. When we are taught that safety lies always with the sameness, then difference of any kind will appear as a threat. When we chose to love, we when we choose to love, we choose to move against fear, against alienation and separation. The choice to love is a choice to connect, to find ourselves in others. And so many of us are imprisoned by fear. Love ethic, um, we can only move towards a love, love ethic by process of conversion. Politics of conversion restores our sense of hope. She talks about that um, just talking about um, ways to embrace a love ethic in this chapter. 
She says domination cannot exist in any social situation where a love ethic prevails. When love is present, the desire to dominate and exercise power cannot rule the day. All the great social movements for freedom and justice in our society have promoted a love ethic. Concern for the collective good of our nation, city, or neighbor, rooted in the values of love, makes us all seek to nurture and protect the good. If all public policy was created in the spirit of love, we would not have to worry about unemployment, homelessness, schools failing to teach children, or addiction. Can you just imagine? That is not a utopia. That is a re-evaluation of the values that we are holding. And it's 100% possible. So she uh, makes the case about the backlash against welfare in America today is not really a backlash against wealth, backlash against welfare abuse, so much as it is a backlash against compassion in the public sphere. While America is full of those who would police our private morals, there is far too little questioning of societal morals. We are among the richest nation on earth, yet we spend a trivial amount on our poor compared to that spent by every other Western industrialized nation. That is not anti-capitalistic. That is pro-human, pro-life. One-fifth of America's children, this is at the time of her writing, lived in poverty. Half of African-American children live in poverty. We are the only industrialized Western nation that does not have universal health care. These are the truths no one wants to face. Many of our nation's citizens are afraid to embrace an ethics of compassion because it threatens their security. Brainwashed, brainwashed to believe that they can only be secure if they have more than the next person. They accumulate and still feel insecure because there's always someone who accumulated more. So this is, when you think about, again, how our value of property ownership, the police were set up to police property, to give it back to the property owners, to protect property. So she says a lot of this is a result of greed and that supports domination. And a world with, of domination is always a world without love. Let's talk about the nuclear family real quick. It's presented as the primary and preferable organization for the parenting of children, one that will ensure everyone's optimal well-being. This is a fantasy image of a family. Hardly anyone in our society lives in an environment like this. Even individuals who are raised in nuclear families usually experience it as merely a small unit within a larger unit of extended kin. Capitalism and patriarchy together as structures of domination have worked overtime to undermine and destroy this larger unit of extended kin, replacing the family community with a more privatized, small, autocratic unit helped increase alienation and made abuses of power more possible. So power over is a very central theme in our country since it's the beginning of time. It gave absolute rule to the father and secondary rule over children to the mother by encouraging the segregation of nuclear families from the extended family. Women were forced to become more dependent on an individual man and children more dependent on an individual woman. It is this dependency that, that became and is the breeding ground for abuse and power. The failure of the patriarchal nuclear family has been utterly documented. Exposed as dysfunctional more often than not, as a place of emotional chaos, neglect, and abuse. Only those in denial continue to insist that this is the best environment for raising children. If you look at history, nuclear family is not how most of our ancestors lived. In fact, it required a village in a community. Yet she says, I know I survived and thrived despite the pain of childhood, 
precisely because there were loving individuals among our extended family who nurtured me and gave me a sense of hope and possibility. They showed that our family's interactions did not constitute a norm, that there were other ways to think and behave different from the accepted patterns in our household. This story is common. Alice Miller calls this an enlightened witness. Practically every adult who's experienced unnecessary suffering in childhood has a story to tell about someone whose kindness, tenderness, and um, concern restored their sense of hope. This could only happen outside of the family and in larger communities. More, th th this is so true. If it were not for my aunties and my grandparents, my mom could not have worked. My dad's dropping the ball in his addiction could not have been mitigated. So it is incomprehensible how we think that one man and one woman only are supposed to somehow raise a child and have that work out okay, especially given what men are conditioned and what women are conditioned to behave as in addiction and chronic illness and low pay jobs and all that. Most of the world's citizens do not have and will never have the material resources to live in small units segregated from larger communities. In the United States, studies show that economic factors are swiftly creating a cultural climate in which grown children are leaving the family home later and are frequently returning or never leaving in the first place. Research by anthropologists and sociologists indicates that small privatized units, especially those organized around patriarchal thinking, are unhealthy environments for everybody. Globally enlightened, healthy parenting is best realized within the context of community and extended family networks. The extended family is a good place to learn the power of community. However, it can only become a community if there is an honest communication between the individuals in it. Keeping family secrets often makes it impossible for extended groups to build community. And she talks about, um, uh, you know, building friendships to make your own family. Oh, she talks about spirituality being a very important part of learning the love ethic. And she says, it is the practice of love that transforms. As one gives, if, as one gives and receives love, fear is let go. As we live in the understanding that there is no fear in love, our anguish diminishes and we garner the strength to enter more deeply into love's paradise. When we are able to accept that giving ourselves over to love completely restores the soul, we are made perfect. We often wrongly believe that torment and anguish are natural conditions. In a world anguished by rampant destruction, fear prevails. When we love, we no longer allow our hearts to be held captive by fear. The desire to be powerful is rooted in the intensity of fear. Power gives us the illusion of having triumphed over fear, over our need even for love. To return to love, to know perfect love, we surrender the will to power. It is this revelation that makes the scriptures on perfect love so prophetic and revolutionary for our times. We cannot know love if we remain unable to surrender our attachment to power. If any feeling of vulnerability strikes terror in our hearts, lovelessness torments. As our cultural awareness of the ways we are seduced away from love, away from the knowledge that love heals, gains recognition, our anguish intensifies. But so does our yearning. The space of our lack is also the space of possibility. As we yearn, we make ourselves ready to receive the love that is coming to us as gift, as promise, as earthly paradise. I love this book. It's simple. 
It talks about a topic none of us really like to talk about much. And it talks about a topic that is incredibly underutilized in terms of how we can change the world and change our own lives. If you go back to the to the last um, uh, podcast that I did, uh, Resma Menachem's My Grandmother's Hands, he they're both talking about the same thing in different ways. Love and fear are the two basic components of our world. When we practice through generations towards a fear-based living, we really lose the effectiveness and the sustainability from the love that we are missing out on. There is not a lot of love in our systems that we are in today, the, the justice system, the legal system, education system, health system, um, police system, all of that. That is a direct result of our generational choices to move in this direction. That didn't start with us. It ain't gonna end with us, but you know what can be done? We can heal with us and make the change for our future generations. When you pay attention to self, when you nurture and nourish and learn how to love yourself through bodily somatic practices like Resma Menachem uh, uh, discusses, through Bell Hooks's radical revolutionary idea of a love ethic, through something like Marianne Williamson's A Return to Love, it is not Pollyanna. These are hard topics. Nobody wants to talk about them. In fact, I would be surprised how many people listen to this podcast because they're such uncomfortable topics to listen to. And they're kind of, we think we know these things already. It isn't a mind knowing. It is a body knowing. Does your body know what it's like to feel and give and receive love? Does your body know the difference between love and abuse? If not, why not? Where did that start? How many generations back do we need to go? What is our body responding to? Why are we all struggling with anxiety, depression, post-pandemic? Why are we all burnt out at our jobs? Where's the love? Where's the healing? Where's the nurturing? That's what I do for my work. I do it one-on-one. -on -one. I'd love to do it in a, a larger capacity, which is why I started this podcast. But it can start with one person. Do not underestimate the power of you doing your work to heal. Stay tuned. We are in Black History Month. Please let me know what you think about this um, on my social media. Um, the links are in the um, podcast notes. Thanks and take care. Welcome to Cloud of Compass Podcast. This is Lori Smith, your host. You want to know more about me? Do you want to work with me? Do you like what I have to say? Um, do you want to write me hate mail? Check me out on social media. I'm at Cloud of Compass 2021 on TikTok and Cloud of Compass 2021 on Instagram. I started this podcast because I wanted to share my knowledge, skills, and experience as an LMSW of 20 years. I am a survivor of help that harmed. I have had mental health issues. My ACEs score is high. I've had a history of trauma, but I also have some professional skills, knowledge, and experience that you might benefit from. I have been a certified diabetes educator for 10 years. I have worked in um, doctor's offices as a care manager with chronic health issues. I am certified. Um, I'm a certified anxiety treatment provider, certified um, trauma provider, certified in compassion fatigue, addiction informed mental health, and most recently a human rights consultant. I am the author of the book Life Hacks with Life Hacks: Tips and Tricks for Accessing Your Inner Resilience. I am the owner of Resilience Coach, which is an outpatient behavioral health therapy 
And most recently, I am the owner of Cloud of Compass Coaching Consulting, um, which is part of this podcast. I have courses in um, recovery-oriented material, uh, neurodivergent um, information coming in. So I have courses, I have webinars, I have um, guests on my podcast, I have merchandise coming out soon. I have a link tree on my social media where you can access all of these things. I'd love for you to learn more about me. Love to you to for you to see if we are a good fit for working together. And in the month of December, I am hosting a half-off special of my of my signature course um, because I want to share this information with the world. It is a six-week course with 12 sessions. Um, 12 videos of me. Um, Again, I'm a little neurodivergent, so it's a little, um, it's not what you're going to expect from a course on transformation, but it is useful information. It is what I have found practical in my practice. It has the 12 video sessions, but it also has 200 page workbook of tools for self-regulation and we teach how to uncover your own innate skill set. This is why I called my company Clouded Compass because there are things that we have not been pointed towards. And once we align with our internal assets, our life becomes um, a little bit, uh, uh, we become empowered, period. So check me out. Check me out on all my social media. Please leave comments. Let me know what you think. I would love to hear you, um, see you join my course. And please leave comments about the podcast too. I'd love to know what your favorite um, podcasts are, which ones you think really suck. And let's build community together. Let's educate, empower, and evolve. And let's uncover your own innate assets. Stay tuned.